Glory to Jesus Christ, Lord forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Ladder of Divine Sent by St. John Climacus. And we're picking up this evening with our reading of step number four on obedience. And we're on page 87, picking up with paragraph 72. And uh, tonight he'll be drawing us through uh, not only the importance of obedience, but the fruit of obedience, how it leads to humility and then also dispassion or freedom from the passions in one's, one's life. The importance of, again, the spiritual elder, and uh, not only in terms of being obedient to one spiritual elder, but the, the responsibility of the elder to offer the kind of guidance and direction that is needed. And again, as we've heard so many times, that there is a love and affection for one's spiritual children, and that that responsibility is taken, uh, taken on not lightly, uh, but as if one's own salvation is tied to it, for indeed it is. And uh, so these are the, the themes that we'll be looking at again this evening. So picking up with paragraph 72. Those sick souls who try out a physician and receive help from him, and then abandon him out of preference for another before they are completely healed, deserve every punishment from God. Do not run from the hands of him who has brought you to the Lord for you will never in your life esteem anyone like him. This might be something that seems a little foreign to us. We are very changeable in our day and age, and it's reflected on our personal level, changeable in our minds, our emotions, feelings, and in our relationships as well. And, uh, but the uh, constant wisdom and common wisdom of, of the fathers is that once one has chosen a spiritual elder, that you uh, stay with him. You discern well and pray well before uh, seeking out an elder. But once you have entered into that relationship, that you do not leave it easily. Uh, because it's often a relationship that is attacked. Temptations will come to uh, see one's elder in a negative light or to see their weaknesses and their flaws and let it become an obstacle between uh, the two of you and even allow it to, to drive you away to seek counsel from another and thinking that somehow how you will receive something better or greater wisdom. And uh, I think the, the last little phrase of this paragraph is a powerful one. You will never in your life esteem anyone like him, that one who has brought you to the Lord in a way that no other has. And you know, we can diminish the importance of that as a, for all the reasons that I've stated, but uh, there's, there's something very important about that relationship, to, about the one who's awakened within us, uh, a love for the Lord, but also a love for the ascetic life, the love for the life of prayer. And, uh, and so we should expect on some level that that relationship uh, would be attacked in one way or another, that the evil one would seek to undermine it and the fruit of it. And so we are to guard it as a, something that is precious to us. Number 73, it is dangerous for an inexperienced soldier to leave his regiment and engage in single combat. And it is not without peril for a monk to attempt stillness before he's had much experience and practice in the struggle with the passions of the soul. 
The one subjects his body to danger, the other risks his soul. Two are better than one, says scripture. That is to say, it is better for a son to be with his father and to struggle with, the, with his proclivities with the help of the divine power of the Holy Spirit. He who deprives a blind man of his leader, a flock of its shepherd, a lost man of his guide, a child of its father, a patient of his doctor, a ship of its pilot, imperils all. And he who attempts unaided to struggle with the spirits is slain by them. So again, we, we never traverse the spiritual path uh, in isolation. And uh, this can be a struggle in our day, again, because of the thought of the self-made man, self-made woman. We can be very individualistic in our approach to things. And so the idea of placing ourselves as an apprentice, if you will, under another who guides us along the path, shows us the subtleties of it uh, over the course of time, who can uh, discern well what is going on within our minds and our hearts, our weaknesses, as well as our strengths. And so know how to uh, strengthen us when we are struggling, but also when to test us when uh, our hearts need to be stretched, our faith needs to be stretched, if you will, uh, and to test us where our virtues can then grow over the course of time. And so it's a, a dangerous thing. And this is nothing new. We hear it within scripture, the blind leading the blind, both will fall into a pit. And, uh, and so, again, we're fortunate in our day, I think, to have access to the fathers and their writings uh, that we can turn to them and receive perhaps what might not be so accessible to us in our own day in terms of the more personal kinds of relationships. Let those entering a hospital for the first time indicate their pains and that those entering upon obedience show their humility. For the former, the first sign of their health is the relief I'm sorry, of their pains, and for the latter, a growth, uh, a growing self-condemnation, and there is no other sign so unerring. So a person who's growing in obedience is also going to grow in this spirit of self-condemnation, will begin to develop a clarity about oneself, one's weaknesses and vulnerabilities, the passions that we have a tendency to, to move towards. Uh, the, the deeper that uh, self-knowledge becomes uh, through, through obedience to one superior, uh, the, the deeper this kind of self-judgment becomes. And uh, again, you know, this isn't something, I think there's a negative connotation about this in, in our own day. Uh, Self-esteem is elevated. And I can understand why, you know, I think, something along these lines can turn to self-hatred and, uh, and so often has. Uh, but uh, we can also elevate self-esteem to the point that we are unable or unwilling uh, to see our faults, our flaws, and where our weaknesses are. And so as one enters into obedience and sets aside one's own judgment, one's opinion, and is uh, willing to suspend those things and hear what the other is saying, in particular one spiritual father, then a greater clarity begins to emerge. 
uh, and a greater sense of discernment begins to emerge so that you can see where those weaknesses and flaws are. And this, we are told by John, should be one of the fruits that we see, that uh, it's uh, one of the unerring ways that we know that obedience is growing, where we see this kind of self-judgment or self-condemnation in terms of our laziness and negligence in the spiritual life or the temptations that we freely give ourselves over to uh, on a daily basis. So that's about three, three or four paragraphs. Anybody has any thoughts on any of them so far? Yes, Angela. Yes, I, I'm thinking about St. Teresa of Avila here, mm -hmm. who con consistently called herself a worm, mm -hmm. um, even as she was growing um, it towards uh, perfection, towards that um, you know, highest mansion. And yet there was always that sense of, um, you know, self-condemnation with Teresa. And I'm wondering, wondering uh, would you say in the Desert Fathers whether that ever ends like it didn't for Teresa? I don't think it does end. I think it only grows over the course of time. And again, not in the sense of self-hatred, but humility is truthful living. And as we move towards he who is truth and the perfection of love, and mercy and forgiveness, we begin to see with a greater clarity how we fall short of that, that love and the life that we've been drawn into and how rarely we embrace the, the grace that is so freely given to us. And so we often hear the saints speak of their sins as being as many as the stars of the heavens. And uh, you know, over the course of the years, I've come to see this not as uh, just a pious statement. I think the clarity that it comes through purity of heart allows them to see that the, the thoughts of God, the goodness of God, the love of God is as far above our own as the heavens are above the earth. And, uh, and so, you know, this humility breaks down the illusion that we have of being able to grow in virtue uh, on our own, outside of the grace of God, that what we are being called to is not simply the perfection of natural virtue or, or goodness in accord with our own judgment. What we are called to is a participation in the very perfection of love and mercy that is God's. Uh, and we do this in and through our relationship with Christ, not by our own strength or our ability. And so I think as their trust in the grace of God would grow and their love of God would grow, so would their esteem of, their, of themselves diminish. And they would all experience what John the Baptist would say, he must increase, I must decrease. And on a very personal level, that as we grow in the life of faith, that Christ must fill the mind and the heart. And I think the self begins to diminish and where we find our true self is in and through him. So the false self and the ego that develops over the course of the years that sees ourselves as being independent from that relationship with God begins to diminish. And we begin to see ourselves only in relation, uh, we see ourselves in truth only in relationship to, to God and what he's called us to and what he's made us as sons and daughters of God. 
And uh, so there's a wonderful little book if you're interested. And I've mentioned in some groups before, it's written by a Trappist monk named Michael Casey from Australia. And, uh, and a superb writer, I, I think among contemporary writers, he's one, one of the best uh, in terms of West, Western, coming from the Western tradition too. But he wrote a little book called Truthful Living, Humility in the Role of St. Benedict. And it's probably one of the best little books I read on humility in terms of its clarity about what humility is not and what it is and how it manifests itself uh, in our lives. And uh, he's written a couple of wonderful books that are just extraordinary. Strangers to the City is another one, if you have an opportunity to read it. Very accessible, but not watering down the tradition at all. But this truthful living, I think, is what captured my imagination in reading the book, that humility being that, we see ourselves uh, in light of what God has done for us, but also uh, we see the full truth of our own sin. And one leads us to compunction that draws us into the arms of God. And the more that we see that love of God, uh, the more that we begin to detest our sin and seek to move towards him. Anthony. This humility is different than the idea that man is totally depraved, but God declares us just. That religious idea can and does lead to self-loathing. The hopefulness is the, in the infusion of grace and love, which God gives us very wounded people. That is a happy hope in contrast to our weakness and realization of our darkness outside of being attached to the vine. Yes, you know, good point. And one of the great things that John does within the text is talk about this in particular in regards to penthos or compunction, uh, joyful sorrow. You know, the, the sorrow over sin that leads us not into despair, but leads us to repentance and to turn toward God in order to receive his forgiveness and mercy. And that's where we begin to experience the fullness of joy and hope. So you're absolutely right. You know, it isn't a kind of gazing at oneself to such an extent that we lose sight of God, that the recognition and acknowledgement of the poverty of our sin again, is always to be done uh, in relation to God and what he's done for us in his son. And so even as we see it, there should be this immediate movement towards him. And this is what I like about the Eastern Fathers writing and the sense of repentance. Again, not a momentary reality for us, but this constant turning of the self toward God. And this is true in our struggle with sin that we see it, but the immediate movement for us is to turn to the one who's the source of healing and hope for us. Uh, because if, if this is lacking in us, this sense of compunction, of joyful sorrow, there's always the danger of being drawn into despondency and despair, this kind of self-loathing that you mentioned in, in your comment. And uh, that has had an enormous effect, especially uh, upon Western Christianity, this you know, idea of total depravity and, you know, can lead to a kind of self-hatred, you know, that we're sort of a dung heap covered over with snow, but dig a little deeper, you, you know what you find. And so I think the fuller vision of who we are as human beings 
is something much greater. I think the emphasis is on, you know, the, the beauty uh, of, you know, of the love of Christ, what it has given to us, but also how it transforms our life. And we begin to see the beauty of God in all things, e even in the crosses that we bear and in the penances that we take upon ourselves, that all of these things are to lead us into his arms. We never see these things abstracted from that relationship and our participation in this beauty that saves the world that we see manifest in the cross, this love, this perfect love that is poured out for us, even though we were undeserving. All right. Uh, paragraph 75 on page 88. Let your conscience be the mirror of your obedience, and it is enough. So conscience, you know, we see again and again in the fathers, an emphasis upon its importance. And the word itself means to know with God. And this is why it's so important that it is also properly formed through, you know, our sacred, through sacred scriptures, our reading the spiritual fathers, the sacramental life, confession, you know, all the means that we seek that purity of heart, that there would be nothing that clouds the conscience from seeing that truth. And uh, it becomes a mirror of your obedience. So the clearer and stronger and more uh, sensitive that conscience becomes, uh, so our obedience to the will of God, but also those who in whose charge we, we are should grow as well. It becomes the mirror of obedience for us. Uh, the more obedient a soul is, then the clearer their conscience becomes as well. You know, I think there's always something about, you know, our darkened conscience and how it plagues us. You know, we read recently in the beheading of John the Baptist here this past week during the feast day, you know, that Herod, despite, uh, you know, his uh, brutality, cruelty, how immersed he was in his, his lust, you know, this kind of depravity, his conscience is still weighing upon him. And it's projected out though, onto Christ. You know, he's not obedient to what his conscience is telling him. And so he projects it out onto Christ saying, you know, it's John who's risen again, you know, to come and kind of haunt me, uh, but it's not able to move him to repentance, to conversion. And I think that happens for us too. You know, the, uh, the darker our conscience is and the more unfaithful we are in small or large ways, I think the more disobedient we tend to be. You know, we, we begin to uh, diminish the importance of God's commands in our lives, our fidelity to the gospel, uh, we become more negligent and uh, the life of prayer, but also negligent in the call to love others. And uh, we become much more capable of hating others or dismissing them or treating them with indifference. And uh, 
And so the two are tied together. You know, if our conscience is strong, then it's going to rebuke, rebuke us for our failure in all of these different ways and draw us back to the Lord. All right. So one a very simple statement, but very important, I think, in terms of our day-to-day -day living out of the faith. 76. Those living in stillness, subject, subject to a father, have only demons working against them. But those living in a community struggle with demons and human beings. The former, being always under the eyes of the master, keep his commands more strictly. But the latter, on account of his absence, break them to some extent. However, those who are zealous and industrious more than make up for this, this failing by enduring collisions and knocks and win double crowns. So it's an interesting little paragraph. Now, John is saying that when one lives, uh, say, the life of a skeet, and if you, and if you remember, it would be an elder with a handful of monks under his care. And I think in John's mind, this is the preferable path because the elder can keep a greater eye on them and there's more of a formative uh, kind of effect of it. And he even says that in this battle where there's stillness and, and one is subject to the father, it's really the, the demons alone who are seeking to attack us or draw us into the passions. Uh, when we move into a bigger community, he says, we, we, we deal there with the demons and with our brothers in community. And if the superior is away and unable to be attentive, like the elder would be in a skeet, then one can gradually begin to break away from that obedience sometimes because of the influence of other members of the community or simply because the elder is out of sight, the abbot is out of sight. Uh, he does though come back and say, for those who are zealous then living in those circumstances where there is a lack of zeal, a, a disobedience among other, other members of the community, he says the collisions that inevitably arise from this, the knocks, uh, that one experiences, you know, of moving amongst those who, where there's an uneven desire for God. If one is truly zealous and holds to that path and an extra crown is given, that it requires more uh, to keep one's focus upon God and the practice of obedience and also not fall into the judgment of others. You know, not to become condescending or con condemning of others, but to keep one's focus on being obedient to the superior as well as being obedient to God. And so if one is faithful in the, that circumstance, you know, even greater virtue can be gained. So you see what he's doing there. I mean, it's dangerous to walk alone. It's best to have a spiritual father watching over a small group closely and guiding them. It's harder in a larger community because one can become dissipated, fall, follow the crowd in terms of whether they're being disobedient or obedient. And then also you're contending there not only with the demons, but with those who are, are not embracing the life of the spirit or the Holy Spirit, but the other spirit in their life. 
So one does well to discern the path that you're going to take moving forward. I think the, the idea of a skeet has sort of fallen out. You know, you don't hear about that very often in the West. I think certainly in other parts of the world it's practiced and there are a number here in the States, but the, the small communities, you know, where the emphasis isn't on, you know, uh, great growth, but rather of pursuing this common path to stillness. Uh, I think that's a very powerful and important thing for the life of the church and would be good for us to regain. Okay, number 77. Let us keep guard over ourselves with all care. And when a harbor is full of ships, it is easy for them to get crushed by each other, especially if they are secretly riddled with bad temper as by some worm. So, you know, again, he's talking here about the common life that, you know, when you're moving amongst many others in, in, and for us, I think this would be in the world, you know, within our families, religious communities, when you're moving around a lot, you have to be very attentive to what's going on in your mind and your heart. And uh, if you aren't, then it's inevitable that there will be collisions. That is a breakdown of charity. You know, anger, hostility can grow among the members of the community. And uh, especially, he says, if they are secretly riddled with bad temper. So if a community grows and grows quickly and uh, accepts men who are not tested and enter in with bad tempers, you know, where they are, have this sort of uh, tendency towards disobedience, but also to be irascible, it can have a negative effect upon the life of the community as a whole. And again, this is why we'll, we'll hear over and over again how deeply uh, the men coming into communities, novices are tested for that reason, to see you know, how docile they are, how teachable they are, in the fundamental virtues and whether or not uh, they're well suited for, for that life or if it's going to lead them or others to ruin or eventually if they would leave. It's not an easy life to live. So for within the world, you know, this, you know, to watch our hearts throughout the course of the day, that there aren't any interactions that we have that are insignificant. And so often you'll hear saints, you know, talk about having a smile for another or gentleness, tenderness as being these essential virtues that are often overlooked. And I think in our movement amongst each other, there can, especially when there's a kind of familiarity that begins to grow, there can be a, a roughness then with which we treat each other. And, uh, and this would be similar to the bad temper of a member in a religious community that we, if we treat others with a kind of tenderness and gentleness and patience, then it's going to elevate, you know, everyone who we encounter throughout the course of the day, as well as ourselves, you know, in the way that we bear with the struggles of our day-to-day -day life and, uh, you know, or bear with the crosses that are, are heavy. You know, if we're able to enter into every moment with a kind of gratitude and joyfulness, then, 
you know, our passing through those things is, is going to be much easier and certainly much easier for others, especially if we're the bad tempered one. Number 78, let us practice extreme silence and ignorance in the presence of the superior. For a silent man is a son of philosophy, always acquiring much knowledge. So ignorance in the presence of the superior, you know, it's a powerful thing to be able to suspend judgment uh, and not react immediately to what is said or done. And this is why he says, the silent man is the son of philosophy, a lover of wisdom, the one who realizes that he does not see all ends, does not see all things, uh, even when they seem obvious to him and recognizes that he has blind spots and hard spots. So if he suspends judgment, if he acknowledges his ignorance on that level, of not being able to see what's in another's heart or their reason for acting in a particular way, then eventually this is going to bear enormous fruit for him. He says at the end of the, the saying there, always acquiring uh, much knowledge that the qu quiet man, the silent man, the one who's able to suspend that judgment is going to learn a great deal about himself because in that silence, he'll also see the movement of his heart and how often he's wrong in his judgments. But then he'll also learn, I think, something about the other person and their truer and deeper identity, that who they are goes deeper than just what we see, their external actions, their behaviors, their attitudes, that there's much more to their dignity and identity than what we see on, on the surface. And those, that kind of truth, that kind of knowledge comes out of the silence of prayer, where we allow our hearts to be conformed to that of Christ. And so we begin in a habitual way to look at others uh, with a kind of generosity of spirit rather than suspicion. It's a hard thing to do. I think, you know, especially if we've been wounded in life or even if we've wounded others and we know how the human heart works, you know, we can become jaded and then we become suspicious of what others do, whether it's positive or negative. We interpret everything through this jaded lens. And, uh, and so this silence can free, free us from that. And it's different, you know, it's important that we'll we distinguish the kind of silence that it is. And John will lay this out for, for us a little bit later, that there can be silence that is bitter and leads us to drag our feet, that is passive aggressive. You know, this is the kind of silence that's rooted in generosity and love. Any comments, any thoughts about any of what we looked at here? That's a great paragraph to hold on to. Beautiful, beautiful, I think. So simple, you know, and we've talked before about the mature mind and the, you know, the one who's also mature spiritually being able to hold contradictory things in the mind at the same time and not be phased or shaken by that. 
and be able to make one's way through that. Again, suspending one's judgment and allowing oneself to see with a greater clarity, to see what emerges over the course of time and through prayer and through counsel. Rachel wrote, they may by this, this silence learn to worship God in the moment, standing silent before the other and suspending judgment. That's right, you know, and that's, you know, silence again and again is seen as the language of God. And so to enter into it deeply is to learn that language to, and to be able to understand what God is, is saying to us in the moment or the truth that emerges in the, the realities of our day-to-day -day life that we wouldn't otherwise hear if we are qu moving quickly, if the voices in our mind, as well as what we audibly say, are constantly chattering or making those judgments. Eric asked, how is silence concretely rooted in gentleness and love? Uh, I think it's along the lines of, of what I've already stated in the sense that you know, silence, as it is described here, allows us to look at the other with a greater spirit of generosity. It, it prevents us from judgment, from judging the other. And sometimes, you know, it's in the heat of passion, in the heat of anger, that we will make that quick judgment and respond to it and be overtaken by the passions. And uh, so this silence allows us to be more gentle in general to our approach to, to everyone. And uh, not, not even when they sort of do something insulting or when we do something sinful, but you know, we have a tendency just to judge others harshly by their appearance or their state in life. And again, it can prevent us from, uh, because it's fearful for us again, to enter into the deep poverty of others. And the suspending of that judgment allows us again to see the person before us. And we talked about this in the group on the Evergatinos, where uh, one of the fathers says, if you see people who are struggling and no poverty, but have enough to sustain them, you know, leave them be. But to the one who has absolutely nothing, this is the person that you engage because it's in our tendency to avoid that person the most, because that emptiness, that poverty, whether it's spiritual, material, whatever it might be, I think creates a kind of fear in us that prevents us from entering into it. We want to, to maintain those boundaries that give us a sense of security and safety. And when we see a person who struggles with a kind of poverty, psychological, spiritual, material, whatever it might be, we can, you know, shrink back, uh, you know, almost, you know, immediately from it as a matter of habit. Rachel wrote, may, may be a way to practice faith and wait patiently for God and reveal himself, right? I don't think it means that we won't meet with situations where we find others contradicting us or when we are actively trying to be silent ourselves, contradicting others all day long. So the silence may bring up a lot of uncomfortable contradictions where we learn by necessity to wait patiently and rely on God and his good providence. It is not an inactive silence. Yes, the last thing I think you say there is 
especially is important. All of it was great, but it's not an inactive silence or it's not an empty silence. It's full of, of the presence of God and does the very things that you speak of that, you know, often within this, the spiritual life, as we engage in silence, we engage in, in prayer, we, we begin to see things emerge from the depths of the unconscious, unconscious, the depths of the heart, the deep wounds that are even hidden from ourselves or that we hide from ourselves, that are lost in time uh, or lost deeply because we've buried them, repressed them in one way or another. And so the more that we open our minds and our hearts to God, and the more that we enter into that silence, uh, the more we often will begin to see those things. And sometimes that can be frightening when, you know, the intention of God is to bring healing, to apply a healing balm to that. He allows it to emerge into the full light of his truth. Uh, again, not to punish us or to shame us, but in order that we might be free from it, that we might not have it be something that weighs us down, but being freed of it by being brought, brought into his healing light, we find our capacity to love and trust not only God, but others uh, as, as growing in our day-to-day -day life. Carol, like the Blessed Virgin pondering in one's heart, wonderful image. Yes, you know, again and again in the gospel, especially in Luke, uh, that Mary takes everything that she hears said about her son, everything that she sees done by him and holds it in the silence of her heart, pondering it, we are told, within her heart. And I think this is why Mary then has always been the, the, the greatest guide for us in the mysteries of her son's life. Uh, you know, the, the joyful, the sorrowful, the glorious, that she knows these better than anyone. And so the rosary in particular uh, in the West is a very powerful prayer for that reason, that we know that Mary has pondered these things like no other. And so in and through her intercession, we find a, a, a very capable guide into the deepest mysteries of our life and of our God. Any other thoughts about the paragraphs so far? Johnny Ross, isn't this silence related to our savior's kenosis? It's an emptying of ourselves related also to the via negativa. Uh, yes, you know, self-emptying kenosis uh, that uh, this is part of what we are to imitate in Christ, uh, dying to self and sin, that we are constantly entering into the Paschal mystery, die to self and sin and rise to new life in Christ. And so emptying ourselves uh, through, you know, his grace of the poverty uh, that we struggle with, uh, the disobedience, the self-will, and order that we might uh, embrace his life more fully or come to the fullness of life. And so there is always this dying and rising that's part of the spiritual life. Always, there's always a mortification of the ascetical life, not as an end in itself, but that we might set aside the false self and the true life emerges out of it. And, you know, I think when we find, you know, uh, you know a prosperity gospel or 
where a gospel is edited down to remove all of the things that are difficult or challenging or, or where we remove the cross uh, from, you know, our reflection upon the life of Christ, but also uh, in our own life and seek to escape it uh, in our life, then we lose something in terms of what's been offered to us. We often see those crosses as punishment rather than ourselves being drawn closer to Christ in those moments. And, you know, this is something that isn't learned from books. I think, again, it's something that comes through faith that allows us to comprehend the beauty of this kind of self-emptying love. And the more that we are willing to empty ourselves and the gift of ourselves to God and others, the more that we are drawn closer to his heart. So good point. All right. So number, let's see, what were we on there? Number 79 now. I have seen a monastic who used to snatch the words from his superior's lips, but I despaired of his obedience when I saw it led to pride and not to humility. So snatching the words from the superior's lips you know, almost like completing the sentences of what one is saying or jumping in, that it wasn't a kind of zeal for the superior or that one has uh, embraced the mind and the heart of one's superior so deeply that one anticipates every word that's going to come from him. Uh, but it can be a, a path to pride rather than humility in the sense of. Uh, placing oneself on that equal level of showing one, uh, oneself and others that I have obtained the same level of wisdom. And I think we struggle with this as a whole in the spiritual life. And we saw the apostles in the gospel struggle with it too. Uh, the story that comes to mind is when they tried to heal the young man who is an affliction where he throws himself into water or fire the, the father comes to the apostles and asks him, asks them to heal him. They can't. And it's interesting. They sort of hide the fact from Jesus. The old man goes to Jesus, asks the father to heal the boy, and he heals him. Uh, and it's only afterwards that they sort of slink back to Jesus and say, why weren't we able to heal, heal him? And so there was this sense, I think, that they had as disciples that eventually they would reach this level where they would be able to do what he did, that they would be able to accomplish what he accomplished. And it starts off right from the beginning when they go out to preach, when he sends them out to preach the first time, they come back and what are they rejoicing about? They're rejoicing about the fact that the demons are subject to them. And it gives them a warning at that point. Don't rejoice that the demons are subject to you, but rather rejoice that your, your names are written in the book of life. That, you know, we, we can have this sense that we should eventually, you know, let's put it this way, that, you know, we can have this sense that if we're go always going to be disciples, if we're always going to have to refer things back to Jesus and everyone to Jesus, what's the point? You know, I think we have, you know, this sense of 
growing and developing, you know, that eventually we would reach that same level and be able to do the same things that Jesus does, you know, almost independently. And when they fail to do that with the healing of this young man, they become, they come to the realization, you know, no, that's not, and they can't do that. And all things do have to be referred back to their master. That all things come through the grace that he provides. Anthony, when we are emptied, we want to be filled, to have an identity. But it's awfully hard to follow Jesus because we can't grasp or contain him. So we want to build ourselves into an image of what we want to be or should be. Right. I think beautifully put, you know, I think this is, can be a struggle where pride can sneak into the spiritual life that we can, you know, develop a spiritual identity, a religious identity. We can build a kind of spiritual and religious practice around it as the scribes and the Pharisees did. You know, they had this identity of being the virtuous of their day, the faithful, they kept the law in the most perfect of ways, every, you know, down to the last dot. And, uh, but they weren't able to see their own poverty. And so weren't able to receive the greater gift that Christ was offering. And that can be true for us as well. We can come to this point where we feel that we have it figured out and that we, you know, that we understand the gospel. We understand what it is to live the Christian life on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think it's then that uh, the Lord allows our life to be turned upside down. You know, chaos will emerge the, or the ground will fall from underneath us. And what we thought we saw clearly and perfectly, we realized that we were altogether wrong. And it's deeply humbling. You know, when we, we have revealed our, our pride, that we trusted in our own judgment so fully, and we, we discover that we couldn't have been further away from the mark. It can be devastating. Get your pin drop. Come on, guys. <laughs> Any thoughts or comments? So the father's tick is very deep, you know, in this regard. You know, I think they reveal the level, you know, the depths of self-delusion that we can fall into. And it can be hard to read it, but I think when we're able to sort of accept it and acknowledge it, that it, it can bring about a kind of freedom. You know, once we let go of that illusion, then our living in the truth, you know, we, we are no longer trying to hold up, you know, that identity that we've created for ourselves, the facade, and we allow ourselves simply to be drawn along by Christ. And we begin, you know, life can simplify at that point. You know, all the things that we surround ourselves that really crowd Jesus out, we can let fall away and begin to simply cling to him. All right. Number 80. Let us keep wide awake with all vigilance. Take care with all carefulness. Watch with all watchfulness as to when and how service should be preferred to prayer. 
for this is, cert is certainly not always the case. So in, in their day-to-day -day work, and I think this is true for us, you know, in our day-to-day -day work, we have to be watchful and careful uh, about what we give value and importance, that there will be so many things that emerge in our life that seem to have great weight. And again, the greater challenge for us is when these things are of some import and we can be drawn toward them and feel that we need to manage all these different things in our life. And what they can work to do when they agitate our hearts is to set aside our time for prayer uh, that allows us to see things with a clear, clarity and also to be able to make our way through things with greater peace of mind and heart and be able to handle the things that God wants us to handle at that moment. And so when we are overwhelmed and start seeking to manage our life for ourselves and order our lives for ourselves, and so begin working longer and longer hours or diminishing the time we spend in prayer, uh, then our life becomes weighty. We get to a point where we say to ourselves, I've had enough. I can't stand it. My life has become a burden. And it's only when our life begins and ends with God, everything begins and ends with him, that we are able to make our way through day-to-day -day life, navigate what comes before us and be discerning again, be able to see the truth of the situation and embrace it. Because the more anxious we get, the more controlling we, we try to become, and then the more that we exhaust, exhaust ourselves. Anybody have that experience before? <laughs> okay. I hope I'm not the only one. Yeah. I've mentioned this in a couple of past groups, but uh, I went through psychoanalysis and I remember this coming up. It was a curious little detail, but whenever I'd feel overwhelmed, which was quite often back then, because I had multiple responsibilities, you know, everything came together as if it was planned to like crush me down. But I was like provost of the community, director of campus ministry, and I was studying full time at the Institute and also undergoing analysis. So I was on the couch four days a week and I remember always looking for the better or the best calendar that would help me organize my day. Or I would just, you know, start searching online. And I'd always want a month at a glance so I could see everything that's coming at me. And so, you know, nothing would fall through the cracks that I would be as prepared as possible. And uh, it was an interesting little thing to come up. You know, it was just sort of came into mind consciousness and whatever comes to mind in analysis, you have to say it, which by the way, can be very embarrassing at times, but, uh, and, but it came to mind and I began to, you begin to see, gee, I can be driven by anxiety, you know, to take these steps to try to gain control of my life rather than having the movement for myself be to he who is the source of peace and he who is the governor of our lives. I seek to govern my own life and control it as much as I can. 
even with something as insignificant as a calendar of all things. And, uh, and so again, you know, these little sayings I think are so important in that way. You know, when do we pray? When do we work? And I don't know if I'm right on this, if it was Francis de Sales who said, you know, if you pray an hour a day and if you're really busy, you pray two hours a day. That you, we do what is counterintuitive. The more busy we are, the more we need to pray because more that is, is being entrusted to us and we need to be able to make our way through those things in the way that God intends. It's a hard thing. You know, it's being in campus ministry for so many years, you see students struggle with that. I just don't have time to pray. You know, I have all this classwork. And yet there's always time for movies or pizza night or football game and things like that, you know, but when it comes to prayer, that often is pushed out to the margins. Any final? Oh, no, we still have a little time. That's good. Anthony. Because prayer is work. Yes, you know, I think that's, that's part of our struggle, you know, to see prayer as not as disconnected from the relationship with God, but also disconnected from our very identity as, as human beings, our full identity. And we, the fathers, we hear them say again and again, our goal is to become prayer, not just prayers or those who engage in a discipline of prayer, but that we begin to see it like we see our breathing on a physical level, that prayer is that for the soul. And so Paul's exhortation to pray without ceasing takes on greater meaning there. And this is why we see them gravitate to these short arrow prayers that we form the mind and the heart so deeply that there's this constant movement between the self and God throughout the course of the day, even when we are engaged in things that uh, uh, involve our surface level of consciousness uh, to be focused upon them. You know, a certain work or conversation that we're engaged in, well, the more that the heart is formed by this prayer, the more that it is the spirit again praying within us in a way that is beyond words. And so it's our, our desire for God added to this perfect desire and love that dwells within us. And so, you know, it, our prayer is perfected and elevated by the spirit within us groaning and crying out to God in love. And the more we see our identity in that light and the more that we see prayer in that way, we move away from the sense of it being work or even a discipline. I think initially we have to see, see that, you know, we have to have a role of prayer and a kind of discipline, but we can get stuck there. And, you know, in the sense that we fulfill certain things and, you know, with prayer, we can even be willful uh, in, in the sense that we choose when we pray and we, we choose how, you know, how long we're going to pray rather than discerning how does the God wants us to pray? What's he calling us to? And that might look radically different from what we would imagine. 
No, because so often we we have, especially in the West, this distinction between laity and religious and clergy, and that that's something that nuns or priests do. And living in the world, we aren't called to that, and it's it distorts this understanding of our, you know, the universal call to holiness. But what we've received in and through our baptism, the life that we've been drawn into, and. Uh, and so, you know, our particular station in life might give a unique shape to that. But, it, you know, it's not only those in black robes that are called to prayer or to become prayer in this way. Any thoughts? Mm -hmm. Let's see, Bridget McGinley. The Bible states to pray always the theme of the way of the pilgrim, right? You know, this way of the pilgrim, for those who perhaps haven't heard of it, is a kind of a classic, you know, in Russian spiritual literature that focuses upon learning how to pray without ceasing, in particular, allowing the, the Jesus prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner, to form and shape the heart in order to help create this constant movement toward God. And I think it's that, that kind of dynamic and, you know, this moving toward God. Again, Michael Casey, I brought him up earlier in the group, the Trappist writer from Australia. He wrote a book called Toward God, and it's on, on prayer itself. And again, I love the title of it because this is what we... And Therese describes it in this way, a simple look of love, you know, this directing of oneself toward God as our, our fundamental posture, if you will, into interior postures, always to be turned toward him. Angela. Um, I'm, I'm referring to um, Jean-Pierre de Cossard and his mm -hmm. book, Abandonment to Divine Providence where he was uh, deeply concerned that people weren't um, engaged enough with the Holy Spirit in their prayer and, mm -hmm. and being more controlling. And, um, uh, and yet um, discerning uh, how God wants us to pray. I, I struggle with um, at times where I think maybe the Holy Spirit's leading me to another form of prayer. Uh, but then I, I often think also, well, maybe that's just me, you know, sort of being fed up with that type of prayer and I want something new. And, you know, there are times when I'm um, not clear on whether it's me or whether it's the Holy Spirit. Right. Good thought. And it's often very difficult to discern that. And uh, both ancient writers and contemporary writers now discuss this movement uh, or the stages of spiritual development. Uh, and often they'll start out by discussing the purgative stage, you know, where there is this real struggle uh, with the passions to bring a kind of order uh, to one's life and the appetites to redirect oneself toward God, to develop the practice of prayer. And often in those earlier stages, there is a kind of more uh, uh, discursive meditation that is involved uh, and uh, but the writers will often speak 
when you know when there has been a formation of heart some purity of heart gained one will be drawn into a more illuminative stage is often described as but also the prayer will alter at that point to a kind of prayer of the quiet where what served us well in the past you know and was very rich for us you know the more discursive meditation you know particular kinds of devotion that would help keep the mind focused, but also form the mind and the heart. But so God will draw, gradually draw us to this prayer of the quiet, the deeper our faith becomes. He draws us into silence, but also to walk more and more in the darkness of that faith. And, uh, you know, I mentioned before John of the Cross talking about this, these transitions in the spiritual life as being ligatures, like breaks. And it can be very hard. We can feel that Something new is emerging, but we'll want to move back to what is familiar and we'll think there's something, you know, am I doing something wrong in the spiritual life? Because the prayer that I was attracted to at an earlier stage is no longer as attractive. And so we'll want to go back there because of the particular kind of consolation that it gives to us. Whereas God is, might be drawing us in deeper into faith, but also into that silence where we can hear that word that he desires to speak deep within us. So we let go of our own words. We let go of the use of our own intellect and reason, and allow him to draw us along that dark path of faith. And so it can be very difficult to, to see what's going on there. You know, am I just going through a dry period? Or is, has it, you know, have I become negligent in prayer? Or is God calling me on to something deeper? And again, this, you know, this is why Teresa of Avila would say, you know, I've often experienced great harm through being given the wrong spiritual counsel and advice. You know, as she was being drawn along in her spiritual life, you know, sometimes she was given bad counsel and it gave her great harm. And again, so I think being attentive to what's being said here, uh, that there is this movement. And you know, I think the fathers understood very well, you know, that our intellect, reason, imagination can only take us so far that we have to set out in the spirit of abandonment and to let go of the things that have served us well and allow God to guide us. Uh, you know, it's sort of letting go of the crutches, again, that has served us well and allow, allowing ourselves to be drawn along that dark path of faith. And, uh, and so it's not as though there's something wrong with discursive meditation, using our reason, imagination, intellect, all those things. Again, they serve us for, and I don't think they're ever set aside fully. But I think as one progresses in the spiritual life, it is often into this more silent kind of prayer, but a lingering in God too, where one sort of steps out of the limitations that we often place upon ourselves and allow ourselves to uh, linger in that love and linger in that silence for longer periods of time. And, you know, when we hear the monks praying all night long, again, it wasn't just this sort of test of obedience or they're punishing themselves. It's because they began to experience, especially at night when there was a deep silence, uh, that they were drawn very deeply into their prayer. 
and intimacy with God. And we've often talked here, you know, about allowing ourselves to have those times where we can linger longer in prayer, to take many retreats, where we step out of our routine and we'll pray for multiple hours on end. And that can be difficult because there can be a part of us that wants to pull and do something productive. But if we take, uh, like if we have a f three hours on a Saturday, rather than to immediate fill it with something else to allow ourselves to have a longer period of prayer and doing this regularly then can strengthen our day-to-day -day prayer routine as well. We enter into it more quickly, but we are, are also more inclined to uh, listen to where God is calling us in a moment of prayer, where he might have us want to linger with a particular scripture passage, not to break off that prayer, you know, prematurely. And again, to be attentive to where the spirit is guiding us. And so what you said earlier, I think is very important. You know, how do we allow our prayer to be guided by the spirit that dwells within us and uh, allow this to be what guides and directs us again, rather than our sense of things, our judgment of how long we should pray or how we should be praying. Rachel has a thought here. I think St. Sophrony and St. Siloan speak of this. I wonder, is there always a correlation between desolation and being drawn deeper? Almost like suddenly becoming aware in a deeper sense uh, that in ourselves, we lack the capacity to run to him to feel his presence. So we wait and stay with him. St. Therese speaks of this too. I think so. I mean, we've talked often about how desire is such a part of the, uh, the language of, of the fathers, that there, if we're made for God and we find fullness only in him, then part of our experience of ourselves is going to be our incompleteness uh, and we've talked about the meaning of the word desire being exactly that sense of incompleteness. Uh, and this is what drives us forward toward the Lord. And the more that we give ourselves over to seeing God as being the source of that desire and uh, the way that he's created us, and the more that we direct ourselves to him and long for him, and we can experience that longing and as being a painful kind of reality. Yeah, but it draws us forward to, to linger and remain with him longer and longer because we know that it is his love alone that can satisfy the deepest yearnings of the human heart. And so, you know, there is, I mean, getting back to your question, you know, this movement between desolation and consolation, one will often fall on the, on the, follow the other and not as a means of punishing but i think of drawing us on so that we you know don't become static you know this relationship isn't a static thing that it's you know we're always entering into it more and more deeply and should be striving and christ is strived to enter by the narrow gate agonize uh, agon is the word, agonized to enter into the narrow gate. So, you know, the, there should be something that's pulling us deep within our hearts toward him. And that where we do experience a kind of suffering, when we choose something else that is much less or cannot fill that void, 
that he alone can fill. Well, that brings, we're a little bit over time, so why don't we stop there for the evening, and we'll close as always with the Our Father, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God.